John chapter number 19 this morning. I'd like to read just a few verses down in verse number 38. And I want to take just a few moments and preach to you on a thought that I believe will help you this morning. Beginning in verse number 38 of John chapter 19, the Bible says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. There came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Let's read verse 38 once more. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, notice this phrase, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'd ask that you give me the unction and power of the Holy Ghost, Father, in the preaching that your spirit would have liberty to speak to hearts, Lord, that you give me an unction to preach and give all of us an unction to hear, Lord, not just with the hearing of the ears, but that of the heart. Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone this morning, I pray you'd show them their need of Calvary. Lord, if there's one amongst us that is in this same category, they love you, Lord, but they won't love you out loud. They care for you, but they won't confess you. Father, I pray that you would speak to their hearts this morning. Lord, we'll be sure to give you the praise, honor, and glory that's due your name. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm very interested by the biblical character Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know a lot about Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Secular history gives us a little bit more, although we cannot have the confidence in its authority that we can the inspired Word of God. But you'll find that Joseph of Arimathea appears in all four Gospels. Now, this is unusual. In fact, you'll find as you study the Gospels that there's not a whole lot of stories or truths that appear in all four of them. Uh, There's many that appear uh, together in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and that's known. uh, Those are known as the synoptic Gospels. In other words, they present to us uh, with uh, basic variations. By the way, no contradictions. No contradictions. Just variations. And you say, well, what's the difference? A contradiction would say to me that the Word of God is not inspired because there would be a conflict of truth. But a variation simply tells me that they complement and accent each other and present to us a fuller story. And I could spend a lot of time talking about the different presentations that are given in them. uh, But suffice it to say that in these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same basic narrative is given to us. However, the book of John is holy different. It presents to us many stories that are not found in the other three Gospels. But you'll find that an account of Joseph of Arimathea is found in all four Gospels. If this does nothing else, it ought to bring our attention to this character. 
In all four Gospels, uh, there are some truths that are known about him. In fact, I would say two truths are known about him. One of them is that he was the man that took the body of Christ and that buried him in his own tomb. This was a tomb that a man, uh, no man had ever yet laid in. In fact, I was reading about it and I liked what one fellow said. said he was born from a virgin womb and he was buried in a virgin tomb. There had never been any man buried in that tomb before uh, that Christ was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The other truth that we find out about him, uh, and sometimes it's a little bit more explicit, and sometimes it's a little bit more implicit, but was that he was known as a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever paid attention to the definition of words, uh, you'll know that that is in many ways an oxymoron. Uh, that the term secret and the term disciple just do not go one with another. It's like the term Alabama fan and college degree, amen? But it... <laughs> oh, that's mean. I shouldn't be like that. I'm just picking at you. But, uh, you know, they, they just don't go together. It just doesn't make sense to say a secret disciple. For you see, a disciple was someone that followed the teachings and the principles and the life of Jesus Christ. A disciple did not only mean someone that was saved. There was plenty of people that were saved but would not follow him as disciples. Now, we don't find them recorded uh, in detail in the Gospels, but the Bible says about some that they went away and would not walk with him anymore. We could have a debate about a new creature in Christ Jesus and about the transforming power of the Gospel, and I believe there's a lot of truth and validity to that, but suffice it to say that the term disciple and the term believer or born again or Christian or blood wash or whatever term you'd want to use are not necessarily synonymous. Uh, a disciple was someone that would follow him, and that would imply that they were following him openly. We think of the twelve disciples very often, but you'll find as you read through the Gospels that there were hundreds of disciples, probably thousands, that at one point or another had followed our Lord. As He got closer to the cross, the crowd got thinner. And let me just pause to say that in your life, the closer you get to the cross, the thinner the crowd will always get. Uh, but uh, the Bible says that Joseph was a disciple. That means that he followed the Lord means that he in some ways believed the Lord, that in some ways he trusted Him. He at least trusted His teachings and His principles. And yet the Bible says of Joseph that he was secretly so. We could give a lot of different characteristics of Joseph. In fact, I'll give you what the Bible says about him. The Bible tells us that Joseph was a good man. A good man. Now, when we speak of someone that's good, typically we mean someone that is morally good. We mean someone whose outward life reflects a set of ideals or principles. We'd say that's a good person. And uh, I kind of believe that when uh, the Bible is saying that Joseph was a good man, I kindly believe that it's saying that in other men's estimation he was a good man. The Bible says that there's none good, no, not one. Christ said uh, to the rich young ruler, why callest thou me good? Uh, but I believe if you had looked at Joseph's life, you would have considered him to be a good and moral man. And there's a reason for that, because the Bible also calls him a counselor. Now, when we use the term counselor today, we mean someone that'll uh, charge you a lot of money for you to sit on their couch and tell you what they think or tell you what uh, they think and vice versa. Uh, but when the Bible uses the term counselor, it's a little bit more descriptive. It's speaking of someone that would have been one of the counselors in Israel. 
Joseph would have been part of the uh, ruling body known as the Sanhedrin. It was a uh, religious political structure, and these men oversaw the religious uh, circle of life. That's why when uh, they uh, brought Christ to Pilate, that he said, you have a law, judge him according to it. They were saying, let the Sanhedrin handle this matter. They were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Pharisees uh, would have believed in the resurrection and would have believed in the spiritual elements of uh, Judaism, and the Sadducees would not have. But Joseph was a member of this body. He was an upstanding person. He was a good man. The Bible calls him a just man. We could uh, have some debate about what that word just means. Certainly, uh, we are justified in Christ, and the Bible uses that term in that context. Uh, But I believe when it says that he was a just man, I believe it's saying not only that he did right, but that he tried to do right by others and to others. He was just in his treatment of others. He was a good man. He was a just man. He was a counselor. The Bible calls him honorable. Honorable. Meaning that people's opinion uh, of uh, Joseph would have been a pretty high opinion. I I mean, they conveyed honor upon him and he conveyed honor upon others. We might say that Joseph was in the upper crust of society. The Bible calls him a rich man. Matthew's account calls him a rich man. He was a man that was well-to-do. I hope I painted a picture. This is who we're talking about. We're talking about a religious man. We're talking about a man that was fully invested in his life. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? There are some people, and you'll meet people sometimes. I kind of thought about it as Johnny was talking about the the gypsies, you know, people that can just uh, pull up stakes and break ties and go at any moment, and they're not going to lose much by doing that. That was not Joseph. Joseph was invested in his life. He had bought a grave in Jerusalem. He planned on dying in Jerusalem. He was a man that was fully settled in his life. But then something happens that changes his life. He begins to hear of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He begins to hear of this uh, man that some called the Messiah and others called demon-possessed. He began to hear of this man. The Bible says that he waited for the kingdom of God. Now, when that phrase is used in the Gospels, it's not just saying they're sitting around waiting, but what it means is that they studied the Scriptures and they earnestly and genuinely looked for the Messiah. This was the kind of man Joseph was. He had studied the Scriptures. He knew what to look for. And Christ came along and He fit the bill. Can I tell you that it's a beautiful thing in a man's life when he thinks he's got everything figured out, but that one thing is missing and Christ comes along and the pieces fit and the puzzle fits and all the a sudden he finds that which fills that heart and that hole and void in his heart. What a beautiful time. What a beautiful thing. This is what had happened to Joseph. As he sat on the sidelines, so to speak, of the interaction with Jesus Christ, he observed Christ's response. He observed the truths connected around his birth and around his life. And, and Joseph began to think within himself, you know, I believe this man is the Messiah. I don't know when the moment was in which Joseph chose to invest his faith in Christ. But suffice it to say that Joseph was invested in Christ. The only problem was Joseph was invested somewhere else too. Almost like the uh, place, uh, the storm that's spoken of in the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter 27, called Eurocladon. The Bible says it was in a place where two seas met. This is where Joseph is at. He knows what his heart believes. He knows what the truth of the Word of God says. But now there is a climate of hostility because of who he's around. Am I describing someone that you know? Someone that knows what's right. 
someone that believes what's right. But they have so immersed themselves in an environment that they are struggling with living for Jesus Christ. This was Joseph. Joseph knew Christ was the Messiah. But he also knew the Jews would persecute him if he confessed it. Let me ask you a question. Your co-workers know you're a Christian? Do your co-workers know you're a Christian? Not just that Christian is what you identify yourself as, but do they see it by the way you live? Are there certain things you're against that your co-workers are not aware of? Now, we're an independent Baptist church, and praise the Lord for that. I don't believe those are uh, the only churches in existence. I believe there's believers uh, that have uh, unfortunately found themselves in other places. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, we are what we are because we believe we're right. I mean, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? It'd be silly to say, well, I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to contend with, uh, you know, I'm going to stay with these truths. I mean, that'd be silly. I've heard people say before, well, you always think you're right. Well, duh. <laughs> Wouldn't it be dumb to know you're wrong and still do something that way or live that way or practice that ideology? Uh, of course so. And so I, I am assuming that you are what you are by conviction. I hope that you are. I, I, I'm hoping that you're not what you are just by birth or by proxy or by environment. I, I, I mean, I hope that you believe the way you do because you believe it's biblical. Now, here's the question. If you believe that it's biblical, are you ashamed of it? Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Do you want to not be labeled as a fanatic? We don't like that word fanatic. But the truth of the matter is, when you're a fanatic, that means you're a fan of something. We'll be fanatic at baseball games, basketball games, football games, if we'd ever win them, amen. We'll be fanatic all over the place. But now when it comes to that topic of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden we lose our fanaticism. This was Joseph of Arimathea. We see his devotion at three stages in the accounts that are given to us. And I just want to touch on them real quickly. I want to say that the first thing we see, and we've read it here in John chapter 19, is we see his devotion concealed. His devotion, I'm not going to try to tell you that because he was not proclaiming it, that it was not genuine, because the Bible says that it was genuine. There again, there's the, there's the problem concerning the connection of these two uh, words that are used. And I believe that the Bible used them correctly. I, I believe that he was a disciple. I believe he had a devotion. I believe he had a love. I believe he cared for Jesus Christ. But the problem was he was concealing it. He was ashamed of it. Uh, there's a lot of reasons we might do that. But listen to what the Bible says about Joseph. Look again at verse number 38 in John chapter 19. The Bible says, secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, why was he afraid of them? Uh, turn with me to John chapter 12. And I believe we have, actually, and you might believe differently about this, but I believe in John chapter 12, we have the instance where Joseph of Arimathea came to trust Christ. Now, you can believe differently about that. It doesn't say his name explicitly, but, brother, he fits the bill. And as we talk about an unbroken narrative in the book of John, uh, certainly if this fact and truth and idea was to pop up in John chapter number 12, it would not be quite so unusual for John to mention it in chapter 19 as though we already should know that it's a truth. Look in John chapter 12 and look at verse 42. Now, speaking of the teachings of Christ, the Bible says immediately after that, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. Hey, let me tell you something. You'd be amazed if you'd take a stand for Christ how many people might just follow you. 
Do you remember what it was like in uh, the Old Testament? I believe it's uh, I believe that it's First Samuel chapter fourteen. I could be mistaken about that. You don't hold me to it. But you remember what it was like when Saul was uh, sitting under the pomegranate tree there in Gibeah, and he was relaxing at the battle. And uh, Jonathan, his armor bearer, you know what they said? They said, while they're sitting around doing nothing, we're going to do something. And they went down to the heat of the battle to the Philistines and they began to fight. And the Bible says that those that were in the caves and those that were in the mountains and those that had been afraid of the Jews, when they saw the bravery and the valiant act of Jonathan and his armor bearer, the Bible says that they came from the caves and the hills and the mountains and flooded into the field of battle and the battle was won that day. You'd be amazed how many Christians are hiding out in the caves just waiting on somebody to take a stand for Jesus Christ. You might have some co-workers around you, some friends, some family, some neighbors. They'd take a stand for Jesus Christ. They just ain't got courage enough to do it. You'd be amazed if you'd take a stand how many people might just follow you. The Bible says many believed on him. Notice this. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. I'd say that he hid it for one reason, because of his associations. He had so immersed himself in a group of people that were hostile to Jesus Christ that he was scared. He had so invested himself in the religious lifestyle of being a part of the Sanhedrin. I, I, let me just give you, let me give you a little insight. And this, this is, let me use a little sanctified imagination for a moment. And, and, and if I'm Joseph of Arimathea, and if I'm in that position, you know what I would be thinking? I would be thinking, you know, if I start st- taking a stand for Jesus Christ... They might kick me out of this Sanhedrin. I might lose my job, my money. My family might be ostracized. My connections might be broken. My friends might forsake me. See, he had immersed himself in that environment. Let me tell you something. I understand there's lots of people that get saved, and they were in a bad environment when they got saved. And thank the Lord that He comes to us and we don't have to go to Him. I mean, thank the Lord that when we're in the miry clay, He can reach down far enough to pluck us out and to pick us up. But you know what I've found? Most of the time, people that get saved in those environments, they don't have to do a lot of separating. Their friends separate from them. But you know who that I've found that winds up in the shape that Joseph of Arimathea was in? I find that to be most of the time the Christians that refuse to take a stand for Jesus Christ. You've got a group of friends. There's a certain way they joke with you. You let it go a little farther, a little farther, a little farther, a little farther. Before you know it, they're saying blasphemous things about your Lord and Savior while you sit by quietly. You've got friends, and they push you and push you. Maybe it's co-workers. Maybe it's co-workers. And I may hit on something, and if I hit on it, just hit me back after the service. Amen. But my wife, when she worked... She would, uh, they would have a Christmas party. Don't get nervous, we're okay. They would have a Christmas party. She finally got to where she had not go with them. Because every time that they did, they, they'd be, you know, you're a real winner to go to like Applebee's in the middle of the day and just get blitz drunk. I mean, you've got to be a real winner to do that, right? And that's what they would do. And pretty soon, pretty soon, she had to say, I, I can't go. You know why? Because if, if you let them do it once, they'll just keep on and keep on and keep on. and keep. Before you know it, they'll have a glass sitting in front of you. They'll have a glass sitting in front of you. See, that's the way the devil works. If he can change your association, if he can get you in an environment that's hostile to Jesus Christ, uh, then by proxy you will wind up at some point 
partaking at some point. We see this, what happened with Joseph. He was in an environment that was hostile towards Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, what do I need to do if that's the environment I'm in? Change your environment. That's not too much to ask. I know we live in a day where if, if, if we uh, expect for Jesus Christ, uh, that, that when we look at Jesus Christ, if He expects anything from us, we think He's expected too much. It's not too much for the Lord to ask you to switch jobs, switch friends, switch environments. He's done more for you than you've done for Him. More than I've done for Him. And there's nothing He could ask me that would be too much. Nothing He could ask me. He wasn't asking too much of Joseph. The problem was Joseph had a problem with his associations. But I want you to notice verse 43. I, I've never seen this before. I, I guess I've seen it, but you know how things jump out to you until I was studying for this message. Notice verse 43. For they loved the praise of men. More than the praise of God. You know what the problem was with his association? The problem with his associations was his affections. It, it was a priority problem. You see, he cared more about what men thought about him than what God thought about him. Now, that's where I see a majority of Christians. Hey, that's where I see this preacher part of the time. Afraid more of what men would think than what God would think. Friend, you're not going to stand. You're not going to stand accountable to those co-workers, those friends, that family. You're going to stand accountable to Jesus Christ, just like I am. The problem was, and he can paint it up, and you know we make victims out of ourselves. Oh my, I've never seen such a victim mentality society as we live in. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's a victim. Somebody tried to break in your house and break their leg doing it, they're a victim. They'll sue you. I mean, somebody go through the McDonald's drive-thru and, and get a coffee, and it says on the side, I mean, it's, you can hear it boiling in the cup, you know, and, and they'll pop that top off and try to guzzle it and pour it all over themselves and uh, wind up looking like something out of a horror movie, and they'll say, well, I'm going to sue. It's coffee. It's coffee. You've got to be pretty dumb to not realize that coffee, in most scenarios is probably going to be hot. Am I right? I mean, is that... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you live in a cold coffee world, but it just makes sense to me that coffee's... Go and it says it on the side. I mean, it's got like a nuclear warning label on the side of that cup of coffee. But you know what? Everybody's a victim. Everybody's a victim. Everybody else's fault, not my fault. That's what, that's what Joseph was trying to do. Well, you know, those, those Jews, they would put me out of the synagogue... And what it really boiled down to is he loved what those Jews thought more than what God thought. We can make ourselves a victim if we wish to, friend. But one of these days, listen, we're not going to stand accountable as a victim. We're going to stand accountable as a servant. He said, well, you know, it's just, it's tough, preacher. You don't understand. I don't have to understand. I'm not asking you to do it. It's got nothing to do with what I think or what I want or what, what, I, what I would command if I was in that situation. You're not going to stand accountable to me. The question is, what does God think about the whole mess? You say, preacher, well, you know, you just you, you don't get it. It's tough. You know, I, I like the people I work with. God bless you. You ought to love them. Don't just like them, but love them. But you ought not love them more than Jesus Christ. Preacher, I don't know what I'd do if, if I lost this job. Well, I guess you'd have to be fed by ravens if it come to that. But God's done it before. God's able. We don't do it because we don't believe God's able. We don't do it because we're afraid of what men think. And we love the praise of men more than the praise of God. This is the Joseph of Arimathea that we're introduced to. But then something changes. In fact, you'll find that there are basically only two, two times in Joseph's life that are revealed to us in Scripture. 
the time before the cross, his history, and the time after the cross. You see, something changed in Joseph's life because when we see him in this passage, he's going in unto Pilate, and the Bible says boldly, boldly. Something changed. What changed Joseph? We find it was the cross. It was there that his devotion was confronted. It's what we need today, friend. It's what we need today. And if God uses a leather lung preacher to do it, so be it. But if He uses His Word alone and no human instrumentality, so be it. If He uses your circumstances like He did in Joseph's life, then so be it. But however it is that God needs to get a hold of your attention, when He speaks, neighbor, you better listen. Because what we need is we need to have our devotion questioned and confronted. Look what it says. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We'll read another account of this. And it gives us a little bit of context. Luke chapter 23 And I want you to look for verse 50 when we get there. See, Joseph had to ask himself some hard questions. And this is what we're going to have to learn to do if we're going to grow in Christ. Look at verse 50. The Bible says, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. Notice this phrase. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. Now, this tells me something. Joseph had been there uh, when the proceedings against Christ were either talked about or were beginning. Because he was given an opportunity, whether he would cast his lot with the Sanhedrin or whether he would take a stand for Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice what Joseph did. The Bible does not say that Joseph took a stand. The Bible says that Joseph consented not. Now, when we say consent, we're talking about your will or your permission. Uh, some of you remember when you was growing up and they used to take a field trips, that they would say, need a consent form. Or what we would call uh, a, uh, what do we used to call them? Permission slip. Permission slip. It's a consent form. That's your parent, and they're saying, I will allow this to happen. Joseph uh, was saying, if I had my preference, it would not happen. He was not taking a stand. I want you to notice the first thing he learned. He learned the destruction of silence. It wasn't enough. And, and listen, praise his holy name that Joseph didn't stop him from crucifying our Lord. We'd all be in hell. But what Joseph began to realize was silence was insufficient. He could have made a difference that day. And certainly concerning Joseph's accountability to God, he should have tried to. But he didn't. I can picture it. And again, just a little bit of sanctified imagination. We do not know for sure whether Joseph was observing the crucifixion that day or not. We know he was not at the foot of the cross uh, with the women and with John. uh, But I, I believe that he probably observed it or viewed it for two reasons. One was his interest in Christ. And the other was his association with the rulers of the synagogue. They were there that day, and they were observing that day. And if for no other reason than to keep up appearances, I tend to believe that Joseph probably was standing there that day. And uh, there's no question, though, that Joseph knew, because he sought the body of Jesus Christ, that Christ had been crucified. And so what you find is this. Uh, Joseph becomes aware of the crucifixion through uh, uh, observation or through hearing, and he realizes that his silence has contributed. He may have not consented, but that doesn't mean he didn't contribute. Listen carefully. It does not matter your intentions if your actions are wrong. 
We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school. Uh, everybody says that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You ought to hear the full quote. I was telling them in Sunday school. It, it, was, it was spoken of concerning infant baptism. That was the historical context. And so the actual full quote is the road to hell is paved with good intentions and uh, the baptized corpses of infants. I don't think that'd go over as well today, would it? <laughs> But we say, well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. What we mean is it doesn't matter your intentions. The question is your actions. Now, intentions factor in. Your actions can be wrong and your intentions wrong, or your actions can be right and your intentions wrong. But if your actions are, or if your intentions are right, your actions are going to be right too. Didn't matter. He may have not wanted May have not wanted that to happen, but through his silence he contributed. We've all heard the quote probably a hundred times that all that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. Joseph did nothing. Some of you day in and day out at work, you know what you're doing? Nothing. You're going in and you're doing your job and you're working, you're producing, you're getting a paycheck. But as far as making an impact spiritually in your work environment, you're doing nothing. You say, preacher, you don't know that. No, I don't, but I know, I know people. I know human beings. I know human nature. I know what I've been guilty of in my life. And if you're anything like me, I had times like that. You probably have too. He learned the destruction of silence. And I believe it changed him. He saw the effects that not taking a stand could have. If we could only hear and see the screams and torment of lost souls in hell, it would loosen our tongue. If we could only, friend, there are going to be people in hell because Toby Weber did not take a stand. Can I say that plain enough? I'm not talking about you now. I'm talking about me now. Uh, there are going to be people in hell because Toby Weber did not take a stand like he should have. People in hell that it was Toby Weber's responsibility to reach. People in hell that were watching Toby Weber. People in hell that were looking to me and to my life and to my testimony to make an impact in their life. And I dropped the ball. I don't know what it's going to be like for you, but I know it's going to be like that for me. I know it's going to be like that for me. Silence can be very destructive. He saw the destruction of silence. Notice number two. He saw the devotion of the Savior. He saw the Son of God stripped naked, bruised, beaten, bleeding, and dying for the sins of mankind. I don't know what you would have been like on that day, but I kind of believe if I had seen that and if I had been Joseph, I would have thought, He's done so much for me. And I've done so little for him. I won't even take a stand for him. He's willing to hang on a cross for me. I'm not even willing to proclaim him as my Savior. And he's willing to bear the shame and reproach of the cross for me. That would impact me. I think it would impact you. If we could only see and, and grasp, and only eternity will affect this in our hearts, but if we could grasp the shame of the cross, I think it would banish our shame of the cross. If we could see the devotion, it would give us a boldness. I believe that thoroughly. If we could only see Christ, or Paul said, and Brother Johnny quoted it earlier, uh, that Paul speaking said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul didn't say uh, just that the cross is the main thing. He said it's the only thing that I determined to know among you. Paul knew a lot of things. 
Paul could have uh, probably spoke several languages. He was a brilliant man. Uh, he could have easily stood on a pedestal with uh, Plato and Socrates and uh, people of that nature and Aristotle and debated. But he said, when I get in a crowd, I just want to tell of the cross. I just want to talk about what Christ did for me because who and what I am and my intellect and my knowledge and my, uh, my oratorical ability have vanishes before the cross of Calvary. He said, I was all these things and much, much more, but what things I was and what things I had and what things I value, he said, I counted them but done that I may win Christ. He said, they meant nothing in light of the cross. All of my efforts just vanish in light of the great effort of the great one on the great cross that brought a great gospel to a great sinner and saved my soul. Paul said, I determined to know this among you. I determined to know it among you. Paul said, I had to take a stand. He said, I'm a debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian. He said, it's not an option. Hey, it's not something that is coincidental. It must be incidental. It is not something uh, that, that is uh, just an accident. It must be deliberate. He said, I will take a stand because of what Christ did for me. I want you to notice not only that we see his devotion concealed and his devotion confronted. And I'm just going to read this and say a couple words and close. Look what, and you still believe that after all this time. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. I, I just want to give you this final thought. We see his devotion concealed. We see his devotion confronted. Look at verse 42. The Bible says, and now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, counselor which also waited for the kingdom of God, came, notice this, and went boldly unto Pilate. We see his devotion confessed. Finally, Joseph is taking a stand. And notice his confession that it was bold. What he saw on Calvary emboldened him. You know why we lack courage? We're too far from the cross. You know what the Bible says of uh, Peter and John? The Bible says of them uh, that when the Pharisees uh, had uh, imprisoned them for preaching Jesus Christ and they questioned them, the Bible says that the Pharisees, that they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. When they saw their boldness, they took knowledge of them, that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They had been with Jesus. We get so far from the cross that it gets so small in our eyes. Isn't that true? If we'd only get closer, it would loom taller. If we'd only get closer, the shadow would seem broader. But we don't. We stay distant from the cross, and because of this, we lose our boldness. Let me tell you something. If something's not on your mind, you're not going to say much about it. And you know what the old saying says? Out of sight, out of mind. As a pastor, people tell me lots of things, appointments and, and surgeries and sicknesses and prayer requests and all these things. I'm just going to confess to you, I, I know this head looks big, but there ain't, there ain't much brain in it. Amen. If I shake it, it'd rattle. And sometimes it seems like it's tough to keep track of things. And somebody will ask me about something or maybe something that I've said, yeah, I'm going to try to get uh, to that. Or somebody's asked me to do something. And I'll tell them sometimes, you know, that's not even crossed my mind. And what I mean is this, of course I've not done anything about it, because I haven't been thinking about it. You know why we don't do anything about it? We're not thinking about it. We're not bold, because we're not burdened. We're not burdened, because we're not close. We see that he was bold. We see his confession. Notice this, the Bible says that he went in boldly. 
unto Pilate. I like this phrase. In fact, three different words are used in the Word of God. John says he besought the body. Luke says he begged the body. Matthew says he begged the body. Mark says he craved the body of Jesus. By the time Pilate gets, by the time Joseph gets into Pilate, you know what his attitude is? You know when you're craving something? Some of y'all are going to be grossed out by this. Me and my wife went and ate sushi yesterday. How many of you do like sushi? There's my people. How many of you hate sushi? How many of you have never tried it but have already made your mind up? That's what I thought. Went down to a sushi buffet. That don't sound like a good idea, but it is. You ought to go sometime. But earlier in the day, we hadn't planned on doing it, but my wife started talking about sushi. And she kept talking about sushi. And, and she kept talking about sushi. Yeah, that, that's my nice way of saying that. No, she kept talking about it. She didn't have to nag me. My stomach started to nag me. I started, I started thinking about sushi. And you don't have to know what's in it. It's best if you don't. And I just started thinking about it. And you know what? Sushi's funny this way. There's no substitution. There's nothing that's kind of like sushi. I mean, there's not like if you're craving like a hamburger, a chicken sandwich might do. You know, or, or if you're craving like fried chicken, like fried pork chop might do. Or if you're, if you're craving, you know, like chicken parmesan or something like that, you, you know, pizza might do something. But there ain't nothing like sushi. Nothing like it. If you want sushi and you want it bad, the only way you're going to fix that is by getting sushi. When you're craving something, nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. Joseph craved the body of Jesus. He craved to identify with the cross. He craved to be seen with the Savior. He craved to walk with the Lord. He craved these things. He began to show to Pilate that Christ was not just a, a want. He was a need. That Christ was not just one of many. He, he was the one. And not just that He was the main thing, but that He was the only thing. I wonder, I wonder if those around us know we love Jesus that much. Do they think we're a Christian just because we were raised that way? Or because they can see that we love Jesus Christ? Do they think we're a Christian just because that's the church that we uh, prefer to attend? Or do they know it because of how much we love Jesus Christ? I wonder this morning, and I'm done, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you following Him at all? Maybe you've never been saved this morning. If you've never been saved, this morning is the morning. You say, preacher, you can't say that. You don't know. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you've never been saved, don't wait till tomorrow. You, you can wait and wait and wait and wait. And that's a good way to die and go to hell. Because today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here and you'd say, preacher, I, you know, I'm saved and I love the Lord, but I know I'm not living for Him. Let me tell you something. Don't give another day to the devil. Your silence is destructive. It's not neutrality. It's destructive. Make a commitment today to take a bold stand for Jesus. I didn't say an obnoxious stand. I said a bold stand for Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're here and you'd say, Preacher, I'm doing my best and I'm trying to take a stand. But it's getting tough. The Bible says that we're not to be weary in well-doing. For in due season ye shall reap, if ye faint not. Don't faint. 
Don't faint. The psalmist said, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God's going to make it meet the need. God's going to give you the strength and the encouragement. You just come and seek him.